Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to Project Recovery. I'm Dr. Matt Woolley. That's producer Josh Tilton. Project Recovery is brought to you by KnowYourScript.org, without whom we could not do this podcast. Uh, You know, Josh, they have a three-part solution in combating the opioid crisis. It's speak out, opt out, and throw out. So I recommend everybody go check their website, um, learn how to protect yourself and your family from the harmful uh, epidemic of opioids and other prescription drugs. KnowYourScript.org. They do a lot of great stuff here in our community, so I uh, definitely recommend you check them out. So, you know, Josh, we're missing somebody today. (laughs) Uh, C-Money. Casey Scott, star of the show, is not here. Uh, did he mention where he's going? Uh, can I tell? Can I tell the story on yeah, how yeah. he told us? Let us hear it. Okay. So last week, we're going to take people behind the scenes a little bit here for a second. Casey books a guest. He brings him in, and we kind of all just have a little powwow before we start the show. Uh-huh. And, um, right. <laughs> and right, right before we're about to start, I've got the cameras rolling. We're, we're about to hit record. He, he says to us. Oh, also, we need to find – you guys need to find a guest because I'm going to Mexico next Monday and re-record on Thursday. Yeah, it was like right before we started the show, he says, by the way, <laughs> uh, you guys are going to need to get a guest and handle it on your own next week. Which I'd like to think that our listeners know Casey, know him a lo- pretty well by now, and they probably understand – me looking at you being like, of course, this is the most Casey thing to ever happen. Totally. And you know what was what was really funny is I think it was you that asked me, like, how long have you known about this? And he goes, oh, yeah, we planned this about a year ago, this <laughs> yeah. trip. So yeah, he's, off to, he's off to Mexico with the lovely Leslie. And uh, I think some some mixture of her kids and his kids. I'm not sure what it took to make the cut. I don't know if they had tryouts or if it was a GPA thing. Or, or prefer which kids he preferred more than the others. But it didn't sound like all the kids are going, some mixture of the kids and Leslie in there in Mexico this week. So I thought I'd take, uh, I'd take this opportunity to, uh, to tell a story about Casey for a second. Um, I think all the listeners love Casey and love his story. But let me tell you a way, sort of in a way, Casey helped me years and years ago when he didn't know he was helping me and before we really became very good friends. Um, so in, in, uh, in 2003, I moved, uh, from Kansas to Utah to do a postdoctoral fellowship and I'm from Utah. So I've lived here most of my life, but I had lived away for a while and I came back in 2003. And if you know anything about doing these sort of like 
postdoc fellowships. It's really just indentured servitude. Like you have to do your time working for the hospital. They don't pay you very much. And as a result, I was living up north about an hour away. So I was making this commute in from from uh, north of Salt Lake into Salt Lake City and then working all day and going home. And on the way in, I, I, I would get in my head a little bit, you know, uh, worrying about like, gosh, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right place to be? You know, young kids, all that kind of stuff. You know, where's my career going? And I would get kind of stressed out and listening to different things to try to kind of get it off my mind. And I came across the old uh, radio show uh, on the end, which some of you know, uh, it was the morning show. We'll give them their due. It was Jimmy Chunga and Mr. West. I think a lot of you might remember those two guys. They were a lot of fun. And their producer was Casey Scott. And I found that Casey on the radio was doing all the funny, crazy things. They'd send him out on location to do this or that. And it sort of got to be my way of getting out of my head to check in with with seeing what Casey was up to as I drove in that hour every morning to get into the hospital and go to work. And uh, to be honest with you, that really started off my day better. Once I found that show, once I found Casey, listening to him have fun and and be so sort of happy-go-lucky and and doing all that kind of crazy impulsive stuff, he reminded me of like a high school friend or something. And I appreciated that. I really got into listening to that show as I drive in, uh, and it started my day off really well. And I think a lot of people feel that way when they listen to Casey today. Well, fast forward a little bit. Uh, some things transpired. I ended up joining that show in the morning show, doing some talking about psychology right about the time Mr. West left and Casey left. He went off to TV and I stayed and did some weekly guest spots on that show for a few years. And then I decided I was kind of done with that. And Casey gave me a call and we started doing a morning show uh, fresh living over on, uh, channel two. We did that together for a while with Debbie Worthen and she's now here at KSL. And that was a lot of fun, but it started to run its course. And actually that was about the time some things in Casey's life, which he's talked about, started to unravel with marriage and drinking too much. And, uh, I guess we could say he left there, but like, you know, I think we know he got let go and he left and came over here to KSL. And I was like, well, if Casey's not there and Debbie's not there anymore, I'm not going to do that. And so I left and he called me up and he said, hey, I've got this great idea. I'm over here at KSL trying to find my niche. Let's do a podcast together. I want to do a podcast about divorced dads because guess what? We were both recently divorced, right? Great idea, right? Josh is dying over there like, oh, somebody needs to help those guys. So we we recorded, I think, four episodes, four episodes or so. So I don't remember if we had a name for the show yet, but we, you have to record a bunch ahead of time so you can drop them on iTunes and all of that. And, um, and they, were, I, they weren't that good. Let's just be honest. I don't think they were very good. Uh, but we were doing it. We were talking about what it's like to be a divorced dad. And it was still pretty raw for me, a little bit less for him. Uh, it was kind of interesting. I showed up one day. It was actually the day that we were going to drop. It was going to, it was going to be like the announcement and the drop of this new podcast for KSL, and I'm the only one here. And Casey's usually early. Casey's kind of an early guy, rolls in, talks to everybody, knows, and then I started asking around, where's Casey? And everybody looked at me like, you got to be kidding. So that had been the day before he had gotten the DUI in the car accident. And my buddy Casey was in the hospital that day. And so everybody knows the story going forward on that. Um, and I thought, well, that's, you know, that's too bad. I tried to reach out to him. He wasn't really available, right? And he was in treatment for the 45 plus days. So about two months later, I get a phone call and this is Casey. 
And this is a different Casey, I would say, at this point. He sounded a little bit different. He said, hey, I want to get together and talk about maybe doing something. And at this point, I had gone from sort of a fan of Casey who 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 brightened my mood as I was kind of in a stressful time in life to to Casey's friend and we had done you know you know uh, the the TV show together and we we had done a, a failed <laughs> podcast together and and now he's talking about doing it and I wasn't I wasn't that interested to be honest but I I met with him and uh we talked about it and it was interesting Josh because he he was earnest this time he was he was kind of humbled and honest and instead of talking about having fun, which is sort of, I think, uh, Casey's personality, I want to have fun. And he's made himself, he's had a fun career and doing fun things. He said, I, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something that matters. Um, I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble here. And I, I don't want my life to just be sort of meaningless and frivolous. And so he talked about what, what he wanted to do, which was the podcast we're doing now. He said, I want to bring in people. It can't just be about me and my story. Maybe that's how we'll introduce the show, but I want to bring in people, actual, just everyday uh, folks of all walks of life, people that he had met, types of people he had met when he was in treatment. And I want to bring them in and have them tell their story because he had been sitting in these rooms, hearing these crazy stories. And between you and me, Josh, I don't think he'd ever been around people that had struggled to that level before. No, I, you know. I, I mean, maybe who have been in their own kind of addictions, but no, it, it, it the Casey, like, I, I don't remember the podcast we were doing because I was producing that one for you guys as well. Right, I, right. I don't remember what it was. It, <laughs> it wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, I'm glad that one never saw the light of day. Yeah. But it, I mean, to be honest, the Casey that, that, our listeners see now on social media and, and throughout the town and listening from the podcast it's it they know that it's night and day i don't know to kind of see the growth i've known casey for a couple of years now i mean to see the growth that he's he's kind of achieved and worked for and and put the effort in to get i hope our listeners and, and viewers understand how impactful you guys are to the community to to the state of utah because uh, i mean i just cut up a video today and i can't wait for people to see it cuz it's the culmination of what we've done in the past two years. Oh, great. And um, Well, I think it's you yeah. mentioned growth, and I think that's what I was sensing. Because Casey had always been sort of like a good time Charlie, like that buddy from high school that's like, let's go do something crazy, yeah. you know. Which and, he probably still and, is a and, little and, bit. Yeah, but, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But there was like this added layer mm-hmm. in talking to him after he came out of treatment. And he was a little more subdued, a little more focused on doing something meaningful. And I was like, yes, I will get behind that. Um, That sounds like fun to me as well. And to be honest, I hadn't spent a lot of time in the depths of working with people with addiction. As I've said before, addiction uh, psychology is not my specialty. I work a lot, though, with people maybe more in the beginning stages of developing addictions, a younger population, teenagers and young adults, and people who, um, who are just starting down that road. Uh, So I've seen a lot of that, but he wanted to bring people in that could inspire the community because he had, he had seen like, like the people telling their story and, and, and the crazy things that happened to them in their lives because of their addictions, the low, low lows of their lives. And then he was coming out wanting this hopefulness. He's, you know, he's the optimist of the three of us. And he, he wanted, he wants to get better and he wanted to, to 
make people feel that optimism. And so bringing somebody in. So that's why we, we called the show Project Recovery. We're not focused on addiction per se. We're really trying to focus on recovery. And so when he brought that up and we sat and talked about it and we were able to to get you back on as our producer and and I feel like it's been such a fun couple of years now, even with COVID or maybe especially with COVID. It gave us a way to reach out to the community in a time when everything was kind of shut down and talk with people on uh, here in the studio or or on Facebook and Instagram and those sorts of things. And so I'm looking forward to some of the things that we're going to be doing in the third year come as we've started our third year now that will have more to do with outreach and community interaction. And so I want to just like tease the listeners a little bit to listen and pay attention for some of those things that are coming up. But mostly I want to give my good friend Casey Scott, even though he's a bum and yeah, planned a we did this. vacation in Mexico for a Ugh. whole year and drops it on us <laughs> at the very last minute, I want to give him uh, props and say thank you for letting me be part of such a fun and I feel like meaningful project uh, here in Salt Lake City. So thanks, Casey. I uh, hope you get a sunburn, and we will see you back here next week. So, Josh, what else are we going to do today? Um, I actually want to introduce a past guest and and talk about why I think their story is is meaningful to either listen to again or, if you're a new listener, to pick up and listen to for the first time. But before we do that, I want to leave everybody with a couple helpful sort of therapeutic things to do. And one of the things that we talk a lot about on this show and frankly in psychology in general these days is mindfulness. And, and, and mindfulness, why is that important? Why would it be important if you are an addict uh, trying to help your recovery? Or how about if you're just a regular person dealing with all the stress of everyday life? And, and that's because where we focus our brain, our mind in time has a huge impact on how we feel. For example... People who focus most of their attention on the future tend to have much higher rates of anxiety. The future is uncertain, so there's a lot of what-if uh, thinking. Casey likes to call it future tripping. And, and so in the present, you feel out of control and anxious and stressed. People who focus in the past a lot, they're always going over what happened to them in the past. They have a lot more uh, regret, woulda, coulda, shoulda sorts of thoughts, and therefore more depression. The key is being aware of the future and planful and learning from our past, but staying focused in the present. Because in the present, people who are primarily present focused tend to be more successful, more well-adjusted. They feel healthier and happier. Uh, They deal with problems. We all have problems, but they deal with problems more successfully than the rest of us. And that is mindfulness. Mindfulness is a state of that active attention in the present moment where you're observing yourself without judgment. I'm bringing my mind into the present, and its I like to think of it kind of like an active meditation. It allows your brain sort of to rest, but also to strengthen itself and gather energy for the problems that you need uh, to deal with every day. So I want to give everybody two simple mindfulness exercises that they can do every day, and I promise you, be it well, I'm, I'll invite feedback. You know, contact us through Facebook if you decide to do this little challenge. Let it, let me know, and, and I'd love to talk to you about what your experience is. But for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to suggest you do the following every single day. And remember, one of the best uh, tools that we have to be 
focused in the present, to be mindful is using our senses. Our sensory input can help us bring our attention into the present moment. So a couple of activities you can do every day. I hope you shower every day, Josh. Yeah, of course. Okay, good. I, 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 my nose doesn't work. I can't smell things. So I'll just assume you always look clean and tidy. Noted. So most people shower every day. So showering is a, is it a wonderful mindfulness activity for the following reason. All of your senses for the most part can get involved in, in a, in a good shower. Uh, so I suggest you step into the shower and the first 30 seconds to minute of your shower isn't, we're not jumping into cleaning yet. We're going to jump into the shower and we're going to feel our feet on the floor. Wiggle your toes, feel the tiles under your feet, breathe in the smells of the shower. Hopefully it's, it's good, right? Soaps and shampoos. What sorts of smells do we smell in the shower? How about the sensation of the water? Is it warm? Is it cool? How does it feel on your head, your neck, your back? Then tune into your ears. Listen to the to the shower. What does your shower sound like? The rushing, the 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 drops of water. Listen to all those things. Take a minute before you rush into all of your cleaning routine and and listen and smell and feel all of the things that are going on in your shower. Now, that may not seem like much. That's just a minute of your day. But what usually happens for people is before your feet even hit the floor, and I'm guilty of this a lot of the time, you're thinking about, oh, all the stuff I have to do today. You go jump in the shower. Yeah, maybe it wakes you up a little bit, but your brain is somewhere else. You're future tripping probably by the time you get to there. You're thinking about the meeting you have at work or the thing you have to do later, uh, all the stressful stuff that's going on in your life. Do yourself a favor and take that first 30 seconds to a minute of your shower every day and go through your various sensory inputs and just absorb what you're smelling, seeing, feeling, all of that sort of stuff, what you're hearing in the shower. Second one is what I call the first bite. And this is a common mindfulness exercise that's often promoted if you've ever taken a class on mindfulness or read a book about it, and that is eating, having a mindful meal. And Josh, I have, I've done this twice. So I've been to various like mindfulness and meditation uh, um, uh, places where you go and you learn about it and you spend a day or two or more learning about it. And I've, I've actually eaten an entire meal on a couple different times in silence and in mindful meditation. It's great. <laughs> it takes is it a by while. Yourself or is it with other people? So like... it's by, well, you're probably in a room, but not right directly near other people. My okay. experience both times was like kind of in these open courtyards where you're eating and you've been trained ahead of time how to do it. And the reason that a meal is great is because, again, your senses can all be utilized to pull your attention into that moment. You can feel gratitude for the food and satisfaction that you're nourishing your body, but you have the taste and the smell and the sight. But let's be honest, like that, I'm not, not too many of us have time to do a whole meal that way. That's true, but you want to know interrupted. what? That's probably like a, a really good exercise that chefs do just naturally. I yeah, I hadn't thought about that. They probably do. I mean, it might yeah. tune their senses for for their uh, for their meal prep and all of that. Yeah. Um, it's also a really great way to digest your food. Actually, they've <laughs> they've done research on that. If you have problems with digestion, this might help with, with slow that down as well, slowing down. <laughs> So, but I call it the first bite. And I think all of us can do that every day. Like you have three meals a day, you have three first bites. 
So what I recommend, and if you want to do more, you can you can do your whole meal. Let's say you're lucky enough to, to have some privacy and, and nobody's going to interrupt you. You turn your phone off. You can sit and eat through this whole meal this way. But for the practical nature of, of life, let's just talk about the first bite exercise. And the way that would work is this. I'm going to imagine we're coming up on lunchtime here, so I'm we're both probably kind of hungry. This might be hard to talk about. But what if you sat down and let's say you had just – a wonderful turkey sandwich for lunch. And so the first thing I'd want a person to do is look at that sandwich, lift it up and realize what am I looking at? I'm actually looking at a a good variety of colors, of textures, of shapes, what's on my sandwich. You're really trying to tune in. And it sounds a little hokey when you say it out loud like this, but if you think about it, you're like, instead of just stuffing that in my mouth, before I do anything, I'm going to look at what I'm seeing. That brings me right into the moment of this sandwich. You know, what kind of bread is it? What's the texture like? What are the colors? Do I have different layers? Is there avocado and lettuce and tomato and and the color of the turkey or whatever I'm eating? I want you to pause and look at colors and textures and shapes. And the next thing might be to pick it up and feel it in your hand if it's a sandwich. You know, how does this feel? Is, Is it toasted bread? Is it soft bread? Is it rough? Is it smooth? How does this feel? Then pull it up to your nose and smell it. Before you put that in your mouth, can you distinguish some of the different smells that are coming out? Can you smell the avocado? Can you smell the turkey? Has the toast been toasted? Can you smell that little smell of toasted bread? Then take that first bite. And the first thing to focus on would be texture. How do I feel about what's in my mouth? There are going to be some smooth textures, some rough textures, Uh, is there mayo, is there mustard, then move into the flavors. What are all the flavors that I'm, roll it around, take your time, chew slowly. What are the flavors and the textures that I'm experiencing on the front of my tongue, on the back of my tongue, on the inside of my cheek? And then swallow that first bite, nice and slowly. Feel it, imagine it going down into your stomach. And take a moment to feel Uh, full and nourished. This is a healthy lunch that you're having and it tastes very good. And, and maybe gratitude, gratitude that you're able to sit and eat such a, such a delicious, healthy meal uh, in in this time of your day and, and realize, think about how it's going to help you have the energy to do the things you need to do for the rest of the day. And then hopefully don't go from zero to 60 and just wolf down the rest of it. But, you know, if you want to turn on music or talk to a friend or whatever you want to do. But turn that phone off. Take a moment. Go through all of those experiences as you're eating that first bite. And that's my challenge to our listeners. Every day a mindful shower. Every day at least one, but hopefully three first bite mindfulness exercises. And then I'd love to hear some feedback from people on Facebook uh, talk to me about like what it was like. If it was lame, you can say it's lame. That part of your brain where you get your feelings hurt, I don't have that part. I'm a therapist. It's been too long. That part got eradicated. So if you think it was dumb, that's cool. We'll talk about it. But most of the time when I give this, because I do this quite a bit uh, on a one-on-one individual basis, most of the time people come back and they say, wow, like I didn't realize I was rushing into my day so much and taking that mindful shower, that first 30 seconds to a minute of my shower to really go through mindfully each of my senses and pull my attention into the moment. I felt grounded. I felt more prepared and confident for all the things I did that day. 
the food is also another one. You know, people, re- you know, you might go out to lunch with friends and you're so busy talking that you don't really even realize what you ate. You just paid, you know, 20 bucks for this meal and you didn't really enjoy it. It didn't really do anything for you other than fill you up. And so most people say, yeah, I feel better. I slow down. The rest of the meal feels really good and I feel grounded. And And mindfulness is great because instead of having to just sit down and and meditate for a long period of time, which I definitely recommend as well, you can do these little mindfulness check-ins throughout the day, right? Um, so that's the challenge. I'd love to hear from you. Moving on to our episode, Dr. Rod Gardner. He was a great uh, person from our first year of doing the show. And the reason that I want to bring this up, uh, well, primarily it's Ashley's favorite, one of her favorite episodes. Ashley uh, uh, said she really was hoping that I would I would highlight this one. So, Ashley, this one's for you. But I also like highlighting it for a few different reasons. One, Dr. Rod Gardner is a great example of how addiction is not a respecter of persons. No matter how much education you have, no matter what your family background is, uh, no matter how much money you have, no matter how well-respected you are in your community, addiction can pop up and, and rear its ugly head. And so Dr. Gardner is a great example of somebody who got stung by that addiction and it followed him for a long time. And, and he does a great job of articulating his story, his ups and downs. But I also want the listener, if, if you've heard this before, you may remember this. If you're new to the show, I'd love you to go you know, listen to this previous episode and pay attention to sort of a pivot point or a turning point in his story. And that happened while he was in jail. And I won't give away the farm and tell the whole story. But there were some moments in there when he sort of took a different approach to how to deal with his life. And he, I guess you could say, humbled himself and his humility and reaching out for a, for help from a higher power uh, became sort of infectious. And other people in the jail started to do it too. They said, I, I want to get what you're getting out of this experience while he was there in jail thinking about his life and thinking about um, his his addiction. And so I feel like this is one of our more inspiring uh, and interesting episodes that really goes to show you, hopefully it, it bursts that stereotype that people with addictions are, are, are not worth saving, that people with addictions are, are not trying, or that people with addictions are, are somehow you know, the bottom of our society. And it's like, no, 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 addictions might take any of us down to those depths. It doesn't matter where you start. It can rear its ugly head, grab a hold of you, and take you to places you never thought you would go. But there is redemption. In recovery, all of us can get well. All of us can start to live our very, very best lives. So I hope you'll take a moment and listen to Dr. Gardner's story. I sure loved it. It was one of my favorites as well. So Josh, thank you for all that you do to make the Project Recovery happen. Uh, To be honest, as a psychologist, this is one of my favorite things that I do. Uh, It's what I I make the least money on, (laughs) if there there is any of that. I don't know if there's any of that floating around in here. It's It's not for the reason other than I just love being with you. I love being with Casey. Uh, and I love each one of our guests um, that comes in. They really are the star of the show when they come in and st- and tell their stories. 
and the inspirations there. So thanks, Josh. Thanks, Casey. I hope you're having fun on the beach. And uh, I know that my life is better because I get to be here with you guys. So uh, thanks for tuning in to Project Recovery. Uh, don't forget that knowyourscript.org is a great place to go visit. Uh, they have that three-part solution of speak out, opt out, and throw out. It's simple but effective. So go check that out. Thanks again to them. And don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, today we got a great show for you. Uh, you know, sometimes the world sends you people at the right time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been doing podcasts, and every once in a while, somebody on Facebook will go, hey, you've got to talk to this guy. Well, I had four different people say, you've got to talk to this guy. And then this guy reached out to me. Of course, his name is Rod Gardner, DDS. Did I get that right, Rod? Yes, thank you. And uh, Rod said, hey, look, uh, I've been listening to your podcast. And if there's anything I can do to help out, I would love to. And I said, would you like to come on the show and share your story? Well, off the air, a few we- you know, several times over the last few weeks, you've mentioned how excited you are to try to get him on. Because I, his story is is amazing and I know just a little bit of it and I can't wait to hear the whole thing but I'm going to give you the kind of the precursor um was a dentist lost his practice went to jail for 13 months got out got his practice back and is rock and rolling is is that in a nutshell that's it yeah that's about right but let's get started how does the story of Rod begin well I got to be honest I've got underwear on (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's generally a standard had, for the show, yeah, Rod. I, just so you know, I'm gonna slide that's, over a bit. This is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only Casey can get away with running commando. <laughs> so uh, I grew up uh, down here in Salt Lake, out in the Willow Creek area, and uh, my dad was a dentist. So it's kind of in my blood. I've got two little sisters and three brothers. I'm second oldest, and grew up in Willow Creek, basically walking out the back door to. To go golfing, and uh, for those who don't listen, we have a lot of listeners out out of the state of Utah. I mean, that's a it's, it's a nice area. Yeah, it's up in a beautiful you know right nestled in next to the mountains. Uh, the golf course is right there. So, I mean, you were living a pretty good life. Yeah, I my life growing up was great. Um, my parents both come from alcoholic families. Both of their fathers were alcoholics, and and they basically you know when my dad was. 19 and my mom was 18 they got married and said let's get out of here and they they were going to go do something different and so had they made the choice not to drink then yeah they because of their experience exactly, growing yeah up? they yeah. they both hated it then and they hate it now and uh so that shaped the the path of their life and they were going to take this family and basically go the opposite of the direction they were raised in and yeah, people in in the in the recovery world would say they were going to break the cycle. They exactly. were going to break the chain. They were going to break the chain, and <clears throat> and I, you know, I can see as I look back, and now as I get older, and I have my own kids, and see, kind of evaluate my life and some of the things that I did and didn't do, and continue to 
to do. I can see how they were trying to just totally change from what they'd been raised in. And yet at the time, it sometimes felt like they were trying to jam us into a hole that maybe we didn't quite fit in. Um, so we grew up down here and then, uh, you know, at a young age, I, and I don't remember exactly when, probably around 12, I just felt a little anxious around in big groups and I'm anxious today. It takes me a while to kind of loosen up. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't help that Casey's not wearing drawers. Yeah. That, <laughs> that'll throw you for that, a loop every that time. That jacked it up a notch, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, so I was always just, you know, I was, I was athletic and, and all these, I guess these things that at the time I, people looked at were kind of important. You know, I, I was in scouts and was going to church, but I always felt this just underlying anxiety, especially around bigger groups. And I, and it got to a point where I felt like maybe there was, that I was different. There was something not quite right with me. And, uh, and I think from that time on, I just it it kind of ne- knocked at my self esteem, and yet life just went on. You know, that kind of anxiety makes a person really self conscious. Would, would you exactly. say you were really self conscious in a sort of unhealthy way, worried about yourself all the time, all the time, um, always wondering what you know, what are people thinking of me? Trying to present myself as as what I maybe looked like, but mm-hmm. not exactly how I felt on the inside. And I got the sense from what you were saying <clears throat> that your parents had kind of rigid rules. You said they were kind of jamming you guys into a – would you say they were kind of rule followers, lots of lots of rigidity yeah, at home? Yeah, because that, that's what they – you know, growing up, that's what they saw worked around them. It, mm-hmm. They didn't want what was going on in their homes. So as they looked around, that's what they perceived was these people who do this, this, and this. Good Their lives happen. are good. So they modeled – that kind of approach. And, and that the reason I bring that up is, uh, and it sounds like you're aware of this, um, kids who grow up in alcoholic, in homes with alcoholic parents often go to one extreme or the other. Either they model that substance abuse and alcoholic chaotic sort of lifestyle, or they, they go swing to the other end of the spectrum, become fairly rigid and rule abiding because of the chaos that the alcoholism causes in the household and the inconsistencies and sometimes there's food and sometimes there's not and all those kinds of things that can be very traumatic for a kid. And so with both of your parents growing up in that household and it sounds like them being on the same page, I wondered if their sort of rigidity affected you negatively because of your anxiety. It may have. And, And I never was able to voice it. You know, they weren't doing anything wrong. I just... Well, no, no, it's just a style, but sometimes yeah. those styles don't mesh well for a young kid who's figuring out that he's got a lot of anxiety. Right. You know, it's interesting. Part of that, my grandpa um, on my dad's side, he would always smell like cigarettes and alcohol. And so I love the smell of a bar because I relate that to my grandpa and he would – you know, he was one of my biggest supporters in athletics and all these things. Okay. He was just always there. So those smells became associated with good things. Those for you. smells are good yeah. to me, whereas my dad hates it, yeah, and hates everything about it. And so, yeah, it's our life experiences that definitely shape the way that we interesting yeah. we deal with things. But so when I was uh, uh, I was going into my freshman year, my parents and, and at the time my older brother was he was kind of going wayward. And uh, 
they thought the the answer was to move out of the Willow Creek area and head back home to where they both grew up, which is in Brigham City. So when my brother was a senior and I was going into my freshman year, they took us and we moved to Brigham City and, and became box elder bees. That's and, kind of a tough time to move, right? You guys probably had a friend group and all Yeah, that we stuff. had a friend group. For me, it wasn't it wasn't as big of a deal, but I could see for my brother it could have been hard. But we both loved the outdoors and loved hunting and those types of things. And whenever we would go hunting, that's where we headed was north because Grandpa had a farm up there, and mm. and that's where we'd hunt. So for me, I was – I think I was okay with it. We were going to be closer to the hunting. And, and eventually my older brother Darren came around. And so we moved to Brigham City. And uh, sometime in that that shift of leaving my old friends and finding new friends, and I found great friends. Um, we're still friends to this day. But I was introduced to some things that – Alcohol? Uh, yeah. Marijuana? Alcohol, marijuana. And initially – I was like, no way, I'm not doing any of that. I'll I'll run with you guys, I'll hang with you, but I'm not. I'm going to be the guy that, you know, is the example. I've got a friend who who kind of talks about that, and he's like, you sit in a barbershop long enough, you'll get a haircut. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, so I, I got mean, a haircut. There's a lot of guys who say, we'll do that. Like, I'm going to go, and I'm not going to do it. Right. But chances are. Eventually. Yeah, yeah they'll get you, you. Yeah. So eventually I tried uh, uh, smoking marijuana. And I can remember right where we were exactly when I tried it. And within 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I was so paranoid and anxious. Oh, yeah. um, it was like a full-on panic attack. And, and it was no more of that for me. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, but I do remember some times where just trying to fit in, I would put it in my mouth, kind of suck in, but not Pretend inhale it. You know, yeah. yeah. So Bill Clinton it. Yeah, it was totally <laughs> totally Bill Clinton in it. <laughs> but uh and then you know it was and that social anxiety continued even though I was doing all the things that that normal kids do and and probably no one from the outside could have any clue that inside I was just like really uptight and uh uncomfortable. And that was just the biology you inherited. That's in good. fact, um, you know, your grandfathers who had alcoholism uh, may very well have felt the same when they were young because we inherit predispositions towards depression or anxiety and those sorts of things. And, you know, it's very frustrating. Like you said, you're doing all the right things. You're, you're athletic. You're going to school. You're making friends. And it still doesn't touch it because it's a biological issue. And you're right. Unless you verbalize it, people from the outside, they, they would think you were doing great. Right. No clue. And then, and then uh, you know, they would actually think that I was something that I wasn't because I was pretty quiet. And so I got that tag of, always stuck up or whatever mm. but really it was because i'm scared to talk to you <laughs> if i don't know you and uh and then my junior year i had never tried alcohol but my junior year in high school i caved in and uh tried a couple beers and instantly i thought i'd found the secret to the rest of my life it felt like okay this is what's been missing now I can talk to this girl or, or these people and I'm comfortable and I'm funny, you know. And uh, so that was 
the marijuana was a bad experience, which was a good thing, yeah. but the, the alcohol was a really good experience. It's interesting with marijuana. What you had is what's called a paradoxical effect where it, it kind of flips and has the opposite effect of what we would expect. For a lot of people, smoking marijuana will um, uh, calm them down until it doesn't. And so people who smoked for long periods of time will have some of those paranoid experiences. And for you, you had it the first time, yeah. so that probably cured your desire to do it a whole lot after. You're listening to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly about recovery. We're listening to Rod Gardner, DDS's story. He talked about the first time he tried marijuana, and then when he tried alcohol, what a difference it made in his uh, young career. We're going to find out more about that in just a few seconds. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. We're talking to Rod Gardner, DDS. He talked about the first time he had marijuana and had a bad effect on it and uh, swore it off to no more. And then he said he tried alcohol and he felt like his life changed and he just figured out the answer to the rest of his life. Casey, Is that correct? Yeah. What does DDS stand for? <sighs> Let's just leave that DDS off. Den- <laughs> dental. You just like you just like to say it, so I wondered. If well, it was at the end of his name in the text. It's cool, it, and yeah. it, it rolls off the tongue. What is it? Doctor of dental surgery. Yeah. So he's a DDS, and yeah, so when you good. tried alcohol, <laughs> you felt like your, your your problems had been answered. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it, and it's not like it's something I jumped into every weekend, but uh, it was kind of a tool in my toolkit that I knew. Okay, if I'm if I'm feeling that way, if I'm in a big group, then drink two or three beers and everything will be fine. And uh, by no means throughout my high school time did I start drinking every weekend. I, that just wasn't in the cards. There was too much else go- going on in my life. But but we would drink every now and again, and, and I always enjoyed it. And uh, you kept that going, and you ended up graduating high school. Uh, Box Elder B, you said. Yeah. And then you went on to... Uh University up at Utah State. Utah State, yep. And went up there for, gosh, it would have been one quarter back then. And then after that first quarter, I went on a mission. I uh, went to Philadelphia on my mission. The city of brotherly love. It was. And and I was excited to go there because I loved Rocky. And uh, Did you run up the stairs? I did, yeah, a number of times. Got to run up the stairs, right? Yeah. But before I went on my mission, I, I just need to jump back to high school real quick. It was after a football game one time when a buddy of mine called me because his mom had given him this pill because he'd gotten hurt in the game. And he's like, dude, you got to come up. So I went to his house, and and I he gave me a Percocet. And he wanted you to come just try it, try just it. recreationally. Yeah. 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 Just we're having just fun. Just for fun. Right? Yeah, and uh, I tried that Percocet, and it was the same thing as the alcohol, but it was even better because no one knew I took it. You can't smell Percocet. can't smell it. And uh, so that was another thing stuck in my, you know, in my mind. Okay, I've got – if I'm anxious, if I'm uptight, if there's a situation I can't deal with, I've got beer. But now I've got something even better, better. if I can get my hands on them, as a, a pill. You're filling up your toolbox. Right, to deal with my problems. How about your friends in high school? Did uh, did you see any friends struggle, have problems because of substance use? Not really. There were, you know, there was one or two guys who really got into the, the marijuana and I think ended up maybe getting kicked off a baseball team or, or uh, and there was a, 
uh, group of guys that broke training is what we, the coach called it, and he kicked them all off of the team. But they, it wasn't like my close-knit group of friends. I ran around with a, a group that was all athletes. Most of them were really straight arrows, and then there was three or four like me who would dabble here and there, and then there's one or two who really got into it, you know. And I think that's pretty similar to my high school experience, too. I mean, I yeah. For most people, probably. Yeah. And, and back then in high school, the, the, the big trouble you could get in was from someone's parents, a coach, or a school. I mean, because like we, we've had some people that got really into it hard in high school. But for the most part, you're just dabbling it and you're trying to figure out your way through life. And so yeah. it wasn't until you had the beer and you're like, okay, this can help me in social situations. And then you took a Percocet. And so now you've got two tools in your tool yeah. belt. Was it just the one Percocet in high school? Just the one time? I think so. Yeah, as far as I can remember. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to hear the marijuana in the greenhouse? Yes. Story? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, I think, I can't remember if it was my junior year or my senior year, but one of the guys had some marijuana seeds. And he brought them to school, and we all had a greenhouse class together. And we thought, at school, at school, yeah, yeah. And we thought we'll plant these seeds and <laughs> <laughs> and see what happens. And so we planted them in in with our tomato flats. <laughs> sure, that makes sense. And to our surprise, they started to grow. Yeah. And there was four of us who knew about this. You know, the rest of the class didn't know, and of course, the teacher didn't know. And then. Uh, the plants were getting too big, so we transferred them to hanging plants so they were kind of out of the way, and uh, they continued to grow and get bigger. And then this poor um, ag teacher trusted us with a key to the greenhouse on the weekends so that we could go in and water it. Cause, Your tomatoes. Yeah. Well, the whole thing. We yeah. needed to, The whole place needed to be watered. It wasn't automatic like, like it is now, so... We had the keys to the greenhouse, and we took a portable TV in there and some lawn chairs. And on the weekends, we'd go in there and hang out and eat pizza and, and water your, our plants. Oh, water your plants. Okay. <laughs> but then one day we came to class, and there was two policemen oh. <laughs> uh, waiting there. And one of the four of us had gotten nervous and ratted you out, ratted us out, uh. spilled the beans to the to the teacher, and. Uh, do you think the the teacher had any idea what was growing there? No clue. No, yeah. no zero clue. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people, I mean, maybe an ag teacher would be different, but a lot of people even today may not really know what a marijuana plant looks well, we, like. Well, we had it planted in with with another pot. Oh, so even harder big, to tell. And so it's, you know, it's mixed in there, but they were getting to be pretty good sized and Certainly, in my mind, I wasn't thinking, "Yeah, we're going to grow these. We're going to we're going to smoke them and and all that." And I don't think that was in anybody's minds, really. We just were being funny and it's kind of a little act of rebellion. Yeah, right? planted yeah. these seeds and then a story to tell twenty years later. Remember when we planted <laughs> weed in the greenhouse? Yeah, yeah that kind of. Yeah. Thing. So what happened with the police officers? You know that that's where uh, I guess. I don't know. My memory gets a little foggy, but I know that me and one of the other kids, we didn't. We got a talking to. I was on the tennis team at the time, and, and we basically got a talking to. But a couple of the other guys had more drastic consequences. And, huh. 
Yeah, it's one of those small not, town Not nowadays. Things. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, back yeah. in the day in a small town, you got to talk into, but yeah. nowadays you'd have been arrested, I'm sure. So uh, last time we talked, uh, well, in the story, you were just leaving on your mission. You went to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yep. And you ser- served two years? I was a year and a half. I was back in the 18-month days. And then uh, you came back and... Came back, went back to Utah State, and... Uh, now, can I ask, on the mission, were there any temptations to use drugs, alcohol, anything like that? Yeah. I, I, as I've reflected back on my life, I see a lot of the times when I turn to it. And uh, I didn't know if this was going to come up today, but since you asked, I, in high school, uh, playing football, I got kicked in the groin. Mm-hmm. And I had a pretty serious issue, but I, of course, didn't want to tell anybody about it. And then on my mission, I had this, like, uh, varicose veins. Right. And That had been created by the injury. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But on my mission, I decided to go to a doctor and get it checked out. And I ended up getting a surgery on my mission. Mm. And I got a prescription for Tylox. It's crazy I can remember that all these years later, but it was Tylenol with oxycodone maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. An, it's an older drug, but right. uh, I took those, plowed through them, and then I went, I remember going and refilling it again. And and as I look back, I I don't think that this was something that was really bothering me on my mission. I think that I thought, hey, this is a way to escape for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, And the mission might have been full of anxiety because of having to go out and contact people maybe and talk to the groups, or was that not a trigger? No, I was good in, okay. in that setting because um, it's just what you do. You right? knew the material. You, yeah, bo- you I believe. knew the material. And, kind of and, playing a role maybe. Yeah. yeah. And I was, I was a straight-down-the-line missionary, but I can look back and see how, gosh, I, I, I think I did that just hoping that I'd get some medication for it. So, yeah, I came home. I, I went back to Utah State and uh, – Within a couple of years, I met my uh, wife-to-be, and we started dating, and within a month, she was pregnant. We got married within four months of meeting and had our first son, and then I um, was talking to my dad one day. didn't know what I was going to do with my life. You know, I thought of being a school teacher, maybe a, uh, like a wildlife agent. And my dad said, you know, I, I, you ought to look into dental school. And I looked into it, and, and I just ran with it. And I started studying hard and studied, really hit the books hard for a couple of years and applied and got in. And, and then in 1990, I uh, headed out to Virginia for dental school. So in 1990, heading to dental school, how many kids did you have? Still just one? Just one, Tyson, yeah. And you and your wife and Tyson headed to Virginia. Headed to Richmond, Virginia and went out there and did four years. And um, my last year in dental school, um, I I had this anxiety come back that I'd had with the, the marijuana. And I, I didn't know where it was coming from. I'm like, well, I haven't smoked any marijuana, <laughs> so why am I feeling this? But I started having this panic feeling when I was at school and that that didn't work out very well because then I felt like gosh I I can't I can't go to school if I'm going to feel this way and I remember one day actually calling my wife and saying I don't know what's going on with me 
but I don't even want to drive home. You need to come and get me. And she came and got me, and and uh, the people at the school, I kind of told them what was going on, and, and I was a good student and doing well, and they were good enough to say, hey, Rod, you just take a couple weeks off. And I went to a doctor, and the guy prescribed me some Xanax. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Xanax helped me calm down, helped me sleep, and got back into school and graduated. And that was back then the the typical response most doctors would prescribe a benzodiazepine like Xanax in the 90s for panic attack. And and it does kind of hit you quick and makes you calm down. But unfortunately, we know now it doesn't really do anything to end a person's cycle of panic attacks, which um, is fairly common in adulthood, especially when you're under prolonged stress. So even though you're doing well in in, uh, dental school, I'm sure just like any graduate student, every day is, you know, yeah, stress, 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 stress. Pushing to graduate. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and after that, we moved home. My dad <clears throat> had a practice in Brigham City, and then he had a little satellite office out in Tremonton. And he basically turned the Tremonton office over to me. So we moved out to uh, Garland, and I started practicing in 94. And at that point, were you just using the Xanax uh, in time of crisis? And so it was just when directed, basically. Yeah, exactly. And more and more, I think I was using it at night just to get some sleep. I've never been a great sleeper. And I found that this Xanax, man, it can just calm the noises out. and the voices in your head. And yeah. Yeah, just help you get a good night's sleep. Yep. But just like opioids, uh, you build a tolerance to benzos. And so did that start to happen where. It didn't quite have the same effect uh, over time, and you needed more. Yeah, I I think it probably did. I don't remember, you know, for for a few years. I think I just kind of used it as directed, as directed. Uh, maybe a little more than that, but I don't I don't remember having problems getting refills or anything. I think I was pretty close to using it as directed. You're listening to Project Recovery. We're talking to uh, Rod Gardner, DDS, Doctor of Dental. Science. Surgery. Surgery. Dang it. It's close. You're Uh, close. Coming up on part two of this podcast, we're going to hear where it all goes wrong and how he gets back on track. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome to Project Recovery. We're talking to Rod Gardner, DDS. He talked about his early, uh, I wouldn't say success, but uh, trials into marijuana, Xanax, uh, Tylox, and Percocet, and and all that. But you don't come on a podcast if you just stop there. Something usually goes wrong. So when did it start to get ugly for you, Rod? You know, it was about three years into being a dentist there in, in Garland, and I we had moved to a new house, and I was installing our sprinkler system and I hurt my wrist, you know, doing the sprinklers. And I had, I had not had a narcotic Percocet or anything like that since my mission. So I decided I needed one to take care of my wrist, but really I, I was looking for something else. I was looking for a way to Did you know you were looking for something or was it kind of a subconscious drive? Somewhere in the middle of okay. that. Okay, <laughs> all right. 
But uh, so this would have been like 90, maybe 97, 98. And I called this this uh, good old boy pharmacist downtown and said, hey, I I need some Lortab. Can I call it in for myself? And he was like, yeah, just don't make a habit of it. Um, so I called me in some Lortab. And as soon as I took that pill, it was – all of it came back, and and it took off from there. I uh, at first I would only use them on the weekends, or if we were going on vacation, um, I would swear to myself I'm not going to use this stuff while I'm working on patients. And for a while, and I don't have any idea how long I was okay at that, but I was using a lot more on the weekends. And that was just to get through the weekend or relax, that sort of thing? Just, yeah, I just thought it, to was, feed make, the addiction. it was making me a better person. I, I can remember going home after a long day, take one, and I'm thinking, how can this be bad? Yeah. Look at me. I'm a dentist. I come home. I'm Superman at home. I'm washing dishes. I'm you Putting know, in your own sprinklers. Yeah. You start telling yeah. yourself these, these lies of – of how it's making you better. And uh, eventually I got to about 10 a day. Um, So needless to say, I started taking them during the week. And as you know, that, you know, you're no longer really taking them to feel like Superman. You're taking them to avoid feeling crappy. And so that addiction was kicking in, and I got to about 10 a day, and I remember my sister called me, and she said, hey, someone called me and said they think that you might have a problem with pills, and they're worried about you. And that was enough for me to run to my wife and say, hey, I've got a problem. I need some rehab. So we, so somebody somebody who knew your sister had seen you in altered state or something? I, I think they knew that I was up to no good with uh, – writing prescriptions. So you're still writing your own scripts for this. Huh? Yeah, it's starting to write them for other people. Uh-huh. Um, and that got a lot worse. So after that that initial time, I went to an outpatient rehab over in Logan where I could go in and uh, I, th- I think I went after work. Mm-hmm. So I'd work all day, then I'd go to rehab. And I remember, I want to see these 12 steps. You know, everyone's talking about these 12 steps and these are the 12 steps that are going to make me better i want to read them and it's kind of a letdown because it's just the same things i've learned my whole life but to me it was this process of repentance and uh and i i looked around at the other people in there and thought you know i'm a lot smarter than any of these people in here i'm going to get through this program and i'm going to go back to just using them on the weekends or on vacations and so i got through that rehab and Went right back to – I don't even think I got totally clean through that rehab. I don't know how I did any UAs or – but I <clears throat> I got a lot worse, got to where I was taking 30 or 40 a day. Wow. I uh, went to Cirque Lodge and hated every minute of it, <laughs> but I was clean for the time that I was there. And How long did you stay at Cirque? It was a month. Yeah, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. I just – the anxiety, you know, you're medicating all that stuff for so long and you're taking things to go to sleep. And I detoxed the LDS first and then went up 
But for that 30 days, I don't think I slept. I was going through the motions of trying to, and, you know, they had a gourmet chef there and I hated the food. <laughs> it wasn't enough, you know. I wanted some Pop-Tarts or something. Yeah, <laughs> gourmet Pop-Tarts. Yeah. You're just looking for reasons to hate this because you're not ready for the help. And, exactly. and I mean, it happens all the time, Is you know, especially in my experience when I was at, at recovery. You could see some people come in and it didn't matter what you do. They were going to find the opposite and go at it. And there were some people that were ready to hear the, the help yeah. and receive the help, I guess. Yeah, and Cirque Lodge is a, it's a great program. Um, but I just, like you said, Casey, I just wasn't ready. So, so after 30 days, they let you go. How long until you start using again? Oh, probably four days. Yeah. And I went, and I went deep, um, really fell off the, and the wagon moved out of my house, left my wife and kids, thought she was my problem, started drinking, going to bars. So I was taking pills all day drinking um and the whole time running a practice running a practice and writing scripts for three or four different people the the way it worked is i'd i'd say hey i'll give you 50 bucks if you'll go fill this prescription for me and Mm -hmm. and i found three or four people that i knew i could manipulate um i don't put it on them at all this was me working my scheme and I paid these people money. Some of them wanted a few pills, and and I would get the rest. And and but I also started doing anything to get them. I I would go to church, look around, make sure, kind of see who's there, and then excuse myself and go into houses in, in the ward because I knew they were in church. Had a friend whose wife was dying of cancer, and I think I was in the elders' quorum presidency at the time um and i'd heard that she was really bad and she was in the hospital so on my way home from work i went and bought a bag of groceries and when you hear someone has cancer and you're a drug addict you think they've got pills in the house so i take this bag of groceries i go to their house i knock on the door i know they're not home i've already been told they're at the hospital but i want to look like if anyone sees me yeah. Like I'm a great guy, you know. So I knock on the door, no one's home, I turn the knob, it's unlocked. I walk in, I put the groceries on the table and I raid the the uh cupboards and I get morphine and and all these these pills and you know, coming clean with that story to this friend of mine years later was it was really hard to to say, Hey, I gotta talk to you about something. But the forgiveness was instant. And uh, so I started just doing whatever it took to to get these pills. The crazy thing about addiction and drugs is you're doing things that you could never fathom that yourself would be doing. I mean, I can see it right now in your mannerisms, in your face. I can hear it in your voice. This is not a fun conversation for you to be having right now. No. I, uh, you know, I wrote prescriptions for people. I had an old boy come into my office. I wrote him a prescri- I pulled a tooth. I wrote him a prescription. And then that night, I took one of my kids with me to go check on him to his house. But I was going to his house to try and get my hands on those pills. So I go to this guy's house. Somehow I get in his kitchen, and I find the bottle, and I take the bottle that I had prescribed to him 
that day. Mm. Another guy I prescribed some, I followed him. It was right on my lunch break. I followed him. He went right to the pharmacy. I sat in the parking lot. And I look back on it going, what was I thinking? Was I going to wrestle him down and take these pills? What was I thinking? What did the mugger look like? My dentist. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Was, he looked like my dentist. really weird. That's so weird. <laughs> but man, that, that just proves that, the, that the, the addiction acts like a magnet. It just, you didn't even know why you're following him. You just were drawn. Hoping for something. Yeah, for an opportunity to, to well, get he, some pills. He goes in. I see him come out with that little white bag and I get that Euphoric. adrenaline rush. I follow him home. Still, what am I going to do? <laughs> he gets out of his car, and I notice he doesn't have the white bag. He walks in his house. I pull up, reach in his car, take the pills, wow. yeah. and I'm gone. And I'm just like. So you're clearly, and not to be rude, but you're out of control. Out of my mind. And so mind. you're stealing from patients, you're writing false scripts. Eventually, this has got to catch up with you somewhere. Yeah. Breaking and entering. Eventually, I, I got uh, hit with uh, two, two second-degree felonies um, for prescription fraud and five third-degree felonies. But they gave me a chance at drug court. So if you go to drug court and you, and you make it through, then they – Expunge it. Throw it all out. Well, I was still using and drinking, and, and I don't even know how I got accepted to the drug court program, but they put me on this naltrexone, which is a opiate blocker. Mm-hmm. So even if you tried to take some, it would block it, and you wouldn't get the high from it. They use it, the same thing for alcohol as well. I mean, they, they, they yeah, use I, it they both put of me them. on that too, and abuse. Yeah. And – I didn't take the naltrexone, so they they gave it to the pharmacist, and I had to go to the pharmacy every morning, and this pharmacist had to crush this naltrexone up and watch me take it. And this was all to not go to jail, and by now the doppel was involved, and this was all to not go to jail and not lose my dental license. They put me on Anabuse. I took the bottle of Anabuse and that they would I'd go to the health department to take that pill. So I had to go to the pharmacist to get my crushed up naltrexone. I had to go to the health department to get my antabuse. But before I took the antabuse to the health department, I just found some generic aspirin that looked just like the pills in the antabuse, and I just replaced that. So when Mm. I'd go to the health department, they thought I was taking antabuse, but I was just taking aspirin. aspirin. So I, I started drinking more. I couldn't use the opiates because of the naltrexone. But I was still hitting the Xanax hard and um, eventually I got kicked out of drug court and that's when my, my jail time started. So you end up in – is it jail or is it prison? Started in jail and then they uh, they sent me to this program. It's called Diagnostics and I don't think they have it anymore but it's at the prison. It's in A West. It's in just an awful part of the prison and – I remember the drive down there in the back of this sheriff's car. They had another guy going with me, and he'd been to prison before, and he was crying. And I knew, okay, this is uh, – I'm headed for some rough times. And we were in 23-hour lockdown for two months. So you 
you ate in your cell, you everything. You get to come out for one hour to take a shower. If somebody did something wrong in the tier, you didn't get a break. You could be in your cell for three, four, five days at a time. Wow. And uh, I'm down there with nothing to deal with my anxiety. So it's through the roof. I'm not sleeping. And, you know, it's a god-awful place. It's it's so bad. It put the fear of, uh, it, it just, I can't even explain how bad it is. Anyone who's gone to prison and survives it and comes out and is uh, anywhere near a contributing member of society, I just have, I have a ton of respect for them. It was horrible. So you spend 13 months in prison. What are you doing to better yourself, or is it just straight punishment? It was straight punishment until the last six months. And uh, after, after the prison, they sent me to a halfway house, and all I had to do was make it through the halfway house, and I could go home and and still have a probationary dental license. Don't ask me how. (laughs) But uh, I used drugs after I used some Oxycontin in the halfway house. This is after going to prison. The god-awful place, as you described. The god-awful place. As soon as this Oxycontin was placed in front of me, my initial reaction was, get the hell out of here. But before this kid could leave my room, I said, no, I'll take it. And uh, I got kicked out of the halfway house. So then they sent me back to jail, and I got to go back in front of the judge that that sent you to prison. Yeah. yeah. The whole time this is going on, I've got to ask, what is your wife, what is your kids, what, what's going on in your home life? It's a mess. Um, my wife uh, started the process to file for divorce. She'd finally just had enough, and she actually sent my brother-in-law in to have me sign some papers at the jail, and I wouldn't sign them. Um, mm. But... You know, my kids, they, uh, I don't know how they're, where they are now. I, I just, I, I, I give all the credit to my wife. She, she tried to keep the practice going. Eventually she had to sell it. Um, they didn't know what they were going to live on. Dad's in jail after I got kicked out of the halfway house and, you know, they revoked my license. My DEA was gone. Everything was gone. And, and uh, that was, you know, everybody talks about rock bottom. I, I, I've been bouncing off the bottom for a long time. But and now I was to a point where I just, I knew it was, it was over. They threw me out of the church, excommunicated me from the church. And I just remember laying in this cell back in Cache County thinking, you know, sometimes when you're in a really bad situation, you can think of one good thing. <laughs> It's like, okay, I'm going to focus on that one good thing. There was nothing. And uh, they brought the razors in one night, and they count the razors, you know, when they bring them in and take them out. And I took one of them, and I busted it up, and I got the the, the blade out of it and flushed all the plastic down the toilet, stuck it in the bottom of my shoe. And I just didn't know. I didn't see any way out. I was done. I was going to, I was going to lose my family. My practice was gone. I wasn't a member of the church anymore, so God didn't like, you know, I was alone. And uh, I remember putting that that blade up to my wrist and, and uh, 
you know, I, I could never do it, but I wanted to, I just wanted to see, cause I just going back to prison terrified me and I knew that's where I was going. But thank, thank goodness to my, a good lawyer, I stayed in jail for six months while the lawyers all tried to figure out what they were going to do with me. And during that six months, I, I, you know, there's no drugs to turn to. You can't get in your car and go for a drive. You can't go for a run. There's nothing. You're, you're just there. And it's loud. It's... And I just started, I'd take my towel and wrap it around my head to block out the light and the noise. And I just lay on my bunk. And I, I remember just laying there trying to say a prayer and just it'd be, I'd, I'd get ha- a little way into it. And I just couldn't even pray. I was so wound up. And, and But after weeks of trying, I finally started to find some peace. And, uh, I was in the cell with about 30 guys. It's like triple bunks. And and the jail commander decided to offer me a job uh, in the kitchen. So they pulled me out of there and they put me in a cell with five other guys, which was at the time it was, okay, there's the one good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a blessing. And I had been laying on my bunk and praying constantly because that's the only time I could find any peace. And I was starting to meditate, and and forced meditation really works. You know, it's hard now that I'm out in life, but it's amazing what you can do when your back's against the wall. And and I started to find peace in meditation and prayer, and that's all I wanted to do. And when I got in this cell with these other five guys, I I had this longing to kneel down and and pray, and. Uh, So, but I didn't know how it was going to go over, you know, but one night I decided, okay, the lights go dim. They never go dark in jail. They got to be able to watch you. So the lights go dim and I kneel down and say a prayer and, and I just kept doing that every morning and every night for a while. And I don't know how long it was, but one night I kneel down and I start to pray and I feel my, my bunk move next to me. And I look out the corner of my eye, and this uh, other inmate's kneeling next to me, this Indian kid. And I remember thanking God that I was there. I remember being so full of gratitude that I was there. And uh, before I finished my prayer, he hopped up and got back in his bed. But the next day, he grabs me, he's all, hey, Doc. I knelt down by you last night, but I don't know how to pray. Will you teach me how to pray? And so I go back to my missionary days, and I teach him the steps of prayer, and then he and I start praying together every night, you know. Not out loud, but we would kneel together, and he'd pray his prayer, and I'd pray mine. And eventually another guy joined us, and and then maybe one of the guys would say, hey, pray for my brother. He's And uh, so this six months— that I went back to jail turned into the turning point of my life. It's, and my sponsor told me all along that one day, if you get through this, you will look at all this horrible stuff as the greatest blessing of your life. 
And that's what it became. And when I, when I could find peace with no drugs, not running anywhere, not needing anyone, but all by myself in a jail cell with a towel wrapped around my head, I knew I got this. And I knew I'd never use again. And that's been 17 years. Wow. Can you describe that feeling of peace? I mean, that's, I think for people listening, you know, that's something everyone searches for, regardless of whether they're actively using or not, or they're just in a stressful life. What was that like for you in that cell, uh, praying, meditating? Can you describe that peaceful feeling and how that was different than? I could, I got to the point where I could, I could turn off the negative so quick. And I was in such a negative environment, but I could turn the negative off. And the only way I can describe it is all that was flooding into me was positivity. I could, I could watch thoughts go by. And if it was something that was going to take me down, I could just look at it and let it go. And the only things I've told my kids and I've tried to pound it into their heads that they need to have time every day where they have no negs and whether it's in the tub or wherever you've got to take this time to where you just get positivity. And I, it, it, it just felt so empowering that I could feel so comfortable in my own skin in such a horrible place with, with nothing. And, uh, so it's just positivity, love, acceptance, accountability. You know, I would, I'd get done meditating and I'd, I'd call my wife and say, listen, I, I know I'm here, but I want to help. What can I do from here to help? And when I would pray, I would, I'd say a prayer for her. Then I'd close that prayer and I'd say a prayer for my prayer for my son. And I would just, everything became outward instead of what do I need and it uh, I think I felt real love for the first time in my life for for others and for myself and I don't know if that no answers that's it, a beautiful I, description I mean yeah it's, it's something the, I long for and and when I something got, we all long for I believe sure I mean everybody wants to feel loved and accepted and positive and be empathetic and all that. I mean, I think what you're saying is that you found who you are and you were okay with who you are. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a powerful statement, being okay with who you are. But your story doesn't end there. So you get out after six months and do you go to any other sort of treatment or do you just know that you're working on it your own way? Well, they sent me the judge... Um, I went back before the judge eventually, and he said to me these exact words, Rod Gardner, your life's like a really bad country music song, but I think you're worth saving. And he said, I'm going to send you back to that halfway house, and this is it. And I went back to that halfway house, and I, I was a rock star. I, it was I, either a three- or four-month program. I plowed through it. Um, I had to go out and get a job um, in Ogden there. My uncle Sam T. Evans. Yeah, yeah. I went over and worked for Uncle Sam, selling toppers, and my cousin Eric, and 
and I'd work there during the day and then take the bus back and live in the halfway house. But it was full of gratitude all the time. Man, I got a job. I'm I'm outside. I'm on a bus. You know, it was just You got your freedom back. Yeah, I was And you got choices. Well and it sounds like that combination of prayer and uh, meditation, which can be so powerful, was really transformational for you. It was. Like now, you, your description and even the affect on your face, you know, I could tell that the, the, you saw the whole world in a different way uh, compared to the first time you had been at that halfway house. So after the Sam T. Evans job, you don't stop there. You decide you want to get your license back. Right. Yeah. So uh, I hit up the dental board after a while. I, I went out. When I got home, I poured concrete with a friend of mine for a while and didn't take me long to realize I didn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I had a meeting with the dental board and 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 I was really active in AA, uh, the church, 12-step programs. Um, pretty quickly they made me a, a facilitator of one of those programs and it was an every every week thing and then I was going to a lot of AA. So I was continuing. Mm-hmm. You're aftercare. Yeah. Big time. It, it was. It wasn't aftercare anymore. It was. This is my life. I've found this secret, and why would I want to stop here? I want to. I've experienced this amount of happiness. I want. I want to pile on top of it. And uh, so I met with the dental board, and they decided to grant me a probational license. I had to be on probation for five years. I had to work under another dentist. I couldn't prescribe. So I found a. A uh, guy in Layton who took a chance on me. You know, that was not an easy sell. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and uh, had plenty of people say no, but this guy took a chance on me. And I, for five years, worked under him. If a patient needed a prescription, we'd have to run it by him. And And then they had me doing UAs. It felt like I've told people three or four times a week. That's what it felt like. But it, it was once a week for sure. And it was a little place down the street from where I worked. And if my number came up, I just it was seven days a week. My color was brown. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was on that program. I had to call. It yeah. It was brown. Dang it. Got to yep, go in. Got to go. And, uh, but I was happy to go. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you was know. too. <laughs> this test I've been studying for. Yeah. I was good to go. <laughs> right. I'm not cheating anymore. Yeah. This will be good. I did that for five years and really had no intentions of practicing in Tremont never again. But this office space uh, opened up and I decided to just buy some space and we sat on it for a while. And my kids were really settled there and and my wife ended up not going through with a divorce. And we just said, what the hell, let's go for it. And Now, being from a small town myself... I can imagine the word got around about your problem, right? Yeah, more than the word. Yeah, many people experienced it firsthand. Right. And so did that factor in? Were you hesitant at all? Did you wonder how people would receive you trying to come back to town and practice again after what happened? You know, the old me would have gone through all that. What are they going to think, all that? But I was so at peace with where I was. Um, I really knew. Because you knew you were I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And I knew, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I didn't know how it would go. Yeah. But I had confidence because I, I, I truly felt like if, if you stay on this path and you do these things right, that it's going to work out. 
And, uh, you know, I've been back there 10 years now, and it's been just wonderful. The, the people of Box Elder County, in, for the most part, have welcomed me with open arms. Um, we've got a thriving practice. I've got my son in there now. We bought the space next to us and blew a hole through the wall. And, you know, we're that's great. I feel so blessed. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I hate all the people that I hurt along. I, I don't hate the people. I hate the fact that I hurt all these people along the way. I hate some of the experiences I put my wife and my kids through, and my family. But this has defined me and who I am and who I want to be. And, you know, as Casey knows and anybody who's gone through it knows, we, we continue to struggle. Um, maybe not with drugs, maybe not with alcohol, but I've got a million character defects. I wake up a lot of the time just sort of negative and and that's something that I've got to keep working on so this the beauty of the 12 steps is I feel like you can apply it to anything and I don't want to just not use drugs I want to use those steps to continue to progress but I'm getting better at not doing that if it happens I'm getting better at closing that window quicker yeah, that's and I, yeah. I attribute all that to the things I've learned in in my journey that I wouldn't have learned in life. I I don't know who I, who or where I'd be had I never used drugs. I'd probably be anxious and and uh, not pleasant to be around. I can tell you this: I'm impressed by your story. And you know, at the very end of our podcast, there's usually something we'll do. It's like, what's your takeaway? And I'd ask Doctor Matt. But right now, for me, the takeaway is that I've been there, where you were laying in the cell, and you couldn't find one positive thing to think about. And as an active uh, addict, you think to yourself, "This is it. It's over." And I think there's a lot of people out there that are listening to this podcast that, when they hit that rock bottom, they go, "This is this is it. It's over. My life will never be the same." True. Your life will never be the same, but your life can be better and you can have more and you can do so many different things with it if you take that first step. Yep. And that's what it takes. And so you, you, that rock bottom is different for everybody else. But just because you mess up doesn't mean your life's over. You got to keep moving. Oh, I agree. Um, I feel like it's uh, what is what's the saying? Uh uh, pressure creates diamonds, not hugs, you know, like an easy life doesn't create a diamond, but the pressure does. Right. And uh, having approached your situation the way you did, there was a lot of pressure you were describing there mentally and emotionally. Um, but you, f- you seem to me like that you're a much more confident, optimistic person, despite dealing with negativity, you know, and struggling to overcome. We all have character defects. We all have personality flaws. But the desire to work on them, I think it sounds like you have a confidence that you can overcome those things, closing that window, like you said. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, it, it makes me happy to tell the story and, you know, be on this end of it for yeah. sure. I think you're going to help so many. We want to say thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story. Uh, as always, if you have an idea or a guest or you'd like to be on the show, you can reach out to us on our social, uh, Project Recovery, uh, Instagram, and Facebook, or you can even email us. Dr. Matt, thank you. It's good to have you back, buddy. Good to be back. And uh, thank you again for listening. You're listening to Project Recovery. Project Recovery, it's a KSL podcast. 
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.